So I absolutely, ever since I was a little girl, I hate, hate being lied to. My, my brothers used to always try to have power over me. One is nine years older than I am. The other one was seven years older than I am. And so they would say like, look at those monkeys out the window. And I'd be like, you know, I was looking for the monkeys. And then they'd do this. You made you look, made you look, stole my mama's pocketbook. I don't even know what that means. And I don't even know why that was an insult, but it was. And they, it wasn't like I fell for it just once or twice. No, every single time. Look at that Barbie doll that's life-size Barbie. You know, I mean, I was just a fool. And I kept doing it. And they would laugh. But I hate, I absolutely hate being deceived. I hate being lied to. You know the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And I remember when we lived in Vista, Brian called me up so excited. We were, we were so poor in those days. And he called me up and he said, Cheryl, you're not going to believe this. I just won a boat. I said, you won a boat? How did you win a boat? Well, you know, the people that make the labels for the cassette tapes, so that tells you how long ago this was, they said that they had this contest and I won a boat. And for $200, they're going to deliver it. I'm like, Brian, we don't have 200. I know, Cheryl, but we can, we can scrimp. We can just, you know, go without and we can do this $200. So we paid this $200 and Brian's like, get ready, get ready. He cleared the side yard so we could park the boat. So we could park the boat. So one week goes by, two weeks goes by, three weeks goes by. There's a knock on the door. I go and there's two boxes. One box is about, I don't know, about eight by eight, maybe eight by 10. The other box is two by two. I open the smaller one and it's a motor for a boat. And it's about the size of a hand mixer. So then I open the bigger box and it's a raft. So I call him up. I said, Brian, the boat is here. It's here. It's here. What color is it? I said, it's gray like rubber. He says, what do you mean? I said, it's gray, like rubber. It's a raft. We got taken. You know, the raft probably with the engine and everything probably cost maybe 50 bucks, maybe 25. And we got it for 200. That's a deal. But there's nothing worse than not only hearing a lie, but buying into it. You know what I mean? Buying into it. There are so many lies floating around us. Brian said, oh, very punny. So many floating raft, so many that it's hard to buy products on the internet. So Brian and I wanted to go out for Mexican food up in Santa Rosa. Our son Char said, there are no good Mexican restaurants in Santa Rosa. I've tried them all. We're like, no, no, we're going to find one. We go on Yelp. It says, no, this one's really good. I said, Char, this got really good ratings. Mom, you're going to be sorry. We go, I get an enchilada and guess what? It's frozen inside. And can I just say this? Who puts peas in an enchilada? Okay, that's just disgusting. Frozen peas with all the other frozen cheese. It was like, okay, who put these good reviews on Yelp? I think it was the abuela. That means grandmother. You know, I think she's just computer savvy and she used all these different names. And she put all these good reviews on, and there we were, eating frozen enchiladas. There are so many lies being played out on television, fictional screenplays, 
that when you try those things in real life, they are disastrous. They're, they don't bring smiles. They bring emotional damage, exploitation, and a boatload, there it is again, of injury. I think about the images, even on Instagram. If you look at Instagram, you think everybody else has a really happy life but me. Yet we don't see them saying, stay out of the dirt, knock that off, pose this way so I can get a good picture of you. You know, no, this corner, it's the only clean corner in the house, stand in this corner. You know, we only see that little glimpse of their house and we're thinking, oh, if only, if only. We see Facebook and there's so many lies on Facebook. There's so much anger and so many um, just false stories on Instagram. I mean, on Facebook, the internet. Oh my goodness. If you want to read a conspiracy theory about anything, anything about frozen enchiladas with peas, go, go to Facebook. You'll find a conspiracy theory or some strange news about everything. Uh, my daughter is going to have a baby, a baby boy. And the doctor said, everything is great with your baby. Everything is fine. I'm so excited. I'm going to be a grandma again, February. Um, anyway, the doctor said, and I'm not supposed to tell anyone, so you didn't hear it here. But anyway, the doctor said, everything is fine with your baby. Everything is great. But one thing, and she's like, yes. And the doctor said, stay off of Google. Stay off of Google, because all it is doing is making you afraid. Stay off of Google. In fact, that's like doctors are like, no, you didn't read Google. No, that's not true. You know, no, you do not have a tapeworm in your brain. You know, all the things that we start getting afraid of because of this. The biggest lie, though, that all the other lies are built upon is this, that fulfillment is found in doing what God says not to. That fulfillment is in adultery. Fulfillment is in fornication. Fulfillment is in disobedience. Fulfillment is in doing something other than what the word of God says. That's the big lie. Oh no, it's, it's what God is keeping from me that the fulfillment is in. And this is what Satan has been saying since the beginning. They say that if a strategy works, then it will be used again and again and again. I love the fact that my phone now says when the, it rings, scam likely. I am so excited about that. Thank you so much scam likely, to think these people have been doing these phone scams, so they just keep it up. Satan has had this strategy since the beginning, and it's been working and working for great success to the kingdom of darkness and giving great havoc to the world of mankind. To understand the dynamics of this lie, we need to look at its power, its deception, and it's disastrous consequences. So that means we're going to have to travel back in time to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. 
Now, maybe you remember in Genesis chapter one that God created land and vegetation and atmosphere and birds and sea creatures and animals and mankind. And as he looked over all his creation, he said, this is good. This is productive. This is beneficial. This is unmarred. And then God blessed it. He favored it. He placed his seal upon it, which is better than the good housekeeping seal. Then God planted a special garden and he filled it with fruitful fruit trees, already aged trees, already abundant with fruit. And this was a place where he would meet with his creation, where he would walk and he would fellowship. It's a place where even the rivers, the four rivers that flowed out of it, it was, it was the source of these rivers. And these rivers were so rich in minerals and nutrients that one led to a land of gold. It was depositing gold. Another led to a place where there was gemstones and myrrh. They were rich with nutrients and life. And God placed the man and woman that he had made in his own image in this very garden. Now, the Bible tells us that they were naked, but they were unashamed because there was purity and no chance of exploitation. There was perfection and all was good. But into this garden, a beautiful serpent came. Now, I don't want you to think snake because then you go, Ooh, why would she talk to a snake? It was a serpent. It was beautiful. It was beguiling. And this serpent initiated a conversation with this woman. At this point, I think Adam and Eve were just enjoying their existence, just having a great time. Have you ever had like just you're having a great time and somebody brings something to your attention and it just ruins everything? It was something like, you know, did you know your slip is showing? And you're like, oh, and then you're spending the rest of the day trying to pull up your slip, you know, up to your waist, above your waist and folding it down. So, you know, you're just having a great day. And, and then there's just that one thing, you know, did you know your dog is stupid? You don't know. You know, if there's that one person says that thing and it just throws you off and you're like, oh. I think Adam and Eve were just enjoying, enjoying their day, enjoying everything that God had given them, everything God was, just enjoying. There was only one prohibition. But what was one prohibition among so many opportunities, among so many activities, among so much wealth and such rich fellowship with God? What was one prohibition when there were so many yeses, so many great things to do. The one prohibition was this. Adam and Eve were not to eat of one tree. Now they had probably thousands, hundreds of trees to eat from. All sorts of trees. I mean, think about it. Bananas, papayas, uh, peach, apricot, um, all ripe, apple, all sorts of wondrous trees that they could eat from. But there was one fruit. I don't believe that fruit exists today. You know, because we try to blame the apple. Do not blame the apple. Stop it. Apples are good for you. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warned them that if they ate it, it would bring death. 
but it's doubtful that they even knew what death was or would look like. Remember, their existence was all good. So the prohibition for Adam and Eve was more like this. Trust God. You don't want to eat of this tree. Did, have you ever had anyone say, trust me, you don't want to go to that Mexican restaurant because they have frozen peas in their frozen enchiladas. Trust me. That's kind of how it was like, because I never had the concept of a frozen enchilada with peas in the middle. I couldn't even imagine such a thing. And my son said, trust me, you don't want to go there. That's like this. They'd never imagined that such a thing could exist. So it was more a matter of just trust me on this. You don't want the consequences of that tree. That consequence of death was something that God did not want for mankind. God only wanted good for all creation, for mankind. But it's hard to know how good you have it when your only experience has been good. Isn't that true? It's hard to know how good you have it when that's all you've known is good. It's hard to believe that such a thing as, again, frozen enchiladas exist. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil provided the opportunity, though, for Adam and Eve to trust God, to obey his word, even when they didn't understand, hadn't experienced the consequences. It was an opportunity to say, I don't need to know what death is. I don't need to experience the consequences. I don't need to know what will happen to trust God right now. I don't. I don't need it. I can obey God and I can trust God and I can enjoy what he has given me. And I can believe that God has chosen the best for me. But here's where the serpent enters the story. He comes in with an agenda and his agenda is to ruin the good that God has established on the earth and with men. He wants to ruin the good. He wants to spoil the good. Kind of like Maleficent when she came to Sleeping Beauty's um, dedication party. Maybe you know this story. It's a great movie. Uh, That movie was actually written as an allegory of uh, Christianity. If you watch it again with that thought, and uh, you'll see so much. But Maleficent only came to the palace to ruin the party. That was the only reason she came, to put a curse on the child, to bring in death where there was life and there was joy. And that's what Satan did. He had an agenda. He came to ruin the good and to spoil God's good creation. Satan had a strategy. The serpent began by drawing Eve's attention to the one prohibition. In fact, when he says to her, did God really say that you couldn't eat of all the trees? Now Eve has to remember, she's like, no, kind of. God said we could eat of all the trees, but one. So Eve is thinking about all the trees she can eat, but Satan says, what about the one? What about the one? He's drawing her attention away from all the freedoms, away from all the good, to the one prohibition. Rather than a consideration of all the trees that she had free access to, 
The serpent centers her attention on that which she has been told not to eat of. Now, suddenly, Eve is looking at, considering, and close by something that she had never considered, looked at, or been close to before. Never before. And suddenly, she's looking at it. Perhaps she never even saw herself entertaining such a thought. Like, why would I even go there? Why would I even think about that? That's so not a part of my existence. But suddenly, here it is. The serpent's first line of attack, as you know, is God's word, the command. Did God indeed say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In this way, he attempts to make God's generosity, to make God's generosity look churlish, to look like God is just selfish. God is a killjoy. How unfair of God to give you a prohibition. How unfair, how wrong of God to say you shouldn't do this. How wrong, how wrong. Are you sure you got that word right? I mean, would God really withhold that from you? Did you misread? Did you misunderstand? Did you misinterpret? Is there another way to see that scripture? Is there another way to read it like in light of our current culture? To interpret it, having moved Eve away from the surety of God's word, he then attacks the truth of God's word. God said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. The serpent directly contradicts this word, you will not die. Remember, at this point, death had not been defined or described. Eve only knew that this was not a good thing. Now, medically, Death is defined as when a person's spirit leaves their body. But there's another definition to death. And it's a spiritual death that results in the medical definition or the physical death. But spiritually, death happens when a person's spirit is separated from God. That's when death begins. So the serpent then attacks the character of God. As we talked about last week, creation itself speaks of God's personality. The garden spoke of God's beauty, of God's order, of God's creative powers, of his ingenuity and complexity, his generosity, his kindness, his care. But the serpent says, God knows that in the day you eat of it, this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Years ago, I was in Virginia and I was talking about this very story. And as I'm about to say what Satan said, and I was at that point where, you know, Eve said, God said in the day that we eat it, we will surely die. And all of a sudden, all the electricity went out. There was a terrible storm outside. We were plunged in darkness. And so into the darkness, I spoke because the speaker was still on. You will not die. And the women screamed. It was such a moment. I felt that that was one of the most powerful messages I ever delivered. I've never had anyone scream since or before. It was like epic. But what Satan is saying to Eve is this. Now, he's not saying it directly. It's indirectly. It's implied. 
And this is what he's saying. God doesn't want you to be fulfilled. God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God wants his arbitrary, hardline, ridiculous, culturally outdated laws kept. That's what the enemy was implying. In other words, God is a cold-hearted moralist like the KGB or the Gestapo. This is what God is like, insisting on outdated rules when when there's a whole world meant that will fulfill you in sin. Eve then begins to look at the tree like she's never looked at it before. Now, she looks at it as a possibility, an alternative to her existence. As she looks at it, it looks like the other trees. I mean, really, what's so different between this tree and the other trees? This tree is beautiful. The other trees are beautiful. This tree is good for fruit. The other trees are good for fruit. But this tree is able to improve her life. This is the lie. This tree will make me better. This tree will make me wise. And then there's a deliberation in what Eve did next. The journey is not recorded, but we know what it must have been like because Eve had to walk to the tree. She had to look at the fruit and choose one of those fruits. And she had to reach in between the leaves and she had to grasp that fruit. She had to hold it. She had to clutch it. And then she had to pull it from the anchor of the branch it was on. She had to bring the fruit close to her mouth. She had to open her mouth. Don't you feel like going, no, no. She had to open her mouth and she had to bring the fruit in. And then she had to bring her jaw down and sink its flesh into that fruit and separate a piece of that fruit from the whole. And then she had to chew it and she had to swallow it. And then we know she turns to Adam and says, here, you take a bite. The immediate sensation was the cold chill of death. You know, they say in each one of our cells is something called the telomeres. The telomeres is like you have a tinker tape inside of you. And they believe that this tinker tape inside of your cell can actually say how long you're going to live without disease or a heart attack, this telomeres. And it's believed that at one point, the telomeres could go on and on. This is even what scientists say. They're trying to figure out what happened to the telomeres in the cell so that men don't live forever. There's millions of dollars being poured into the study of the telomeres inside the cell of mankind to figure out if mankind can extend his life. At that point, the telomeres begin to shrink. It began to get shorter and shorter and shorter. Their eyes were open, yes, but they felt exposed and naked. What their eyes were open to was their own nakedness. 
their own vulnerability. They tried to cover themselves with fig trees. Oh, no, fig leaves. That would be interesting. They were afraid. When they heard the sound of God in the garden, they hid. When God called out to them, they answered from the trees, hiding. God gave them in verse 9 and 11 of chapter 3, the opportunity for confession. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to? Here's an opportunity to come forward and to confess, to say what happened. But you know the story. Adam blamed God for giving him the woman who made him eat. Some things have not changed. Eve, on the other hand, openly confessed. She was deceived by the serpent. That was true. She ate another true statement. God then pronounces a curse on the serpent. He will be more humiliated than all of creation, more than the cattle of the field. Satan did not lose his legs any more than the snake lost his legs. But crawling on your belly was something that when a king was humiliated, they would make the kings, uh, defeated kings, crawl on their bellies. It was a sign of defeat and subservient to everything else. It was deeply, deeply um, humiliating. And so what God is saying, you will be for what you've done absolutely humiliated. I will make you less than the least of my creations. And then he says that one day the seed of woman, which will be born, will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will mortally wound the seed in the heel. The curse of death will affect the woman. She will have multiple conceptions and multiplied sorrows. This is the consequence or the curse of sin. This is what came in. This is what death does. This is the consequence of death. She will have multiple conceptions. That will be necessary. Multiple conceptions to bring forth life. Because bringing life into the climate of death will result in pain because every time she's pregnant, she will be working against death. Her desire will be toward her husband and her husband will now have a dominant place. For the man, the curse will include trying to cultivate life from cursed ground. Before he could eat freely and every fruit was freely supplied to him. All he had to do was go and harvest, but now he's going to have to till the cursed ground. He's going to have to compete with weeds and thorns and thistles for life. And then it will all end in dust. His body will return to the ground it was formed from. Adam and Eve are then removed from the garden, lest they eat of the tree of life and remain in this wretched condition of death and decay without any release. Cherubim then guard the eastern entrance to the garden, and a flaming sword bars the way back in. From there, the consequences of sin continue to take their toll on humanity. In chapter 4, we read that Eve gives birth to her first son, Cain. 
Cain. I started to call him Cable, just combining the two. <laughs> you heard it. I can't deny it. It happened. Eve has another son, Abel. And then she gives birth to many more children. God calls these two brothers to offer a sacrifice. Of all of Adam and Eve's sons, these two are called. It's widely held by theologians and commentators that God continued to speak to mankind from Eden, that Adam and Eve were not too far from Eden, that they could see the cherubim and the flaming sword, and that they knew God was inside the garden and they were separated, but they could still speak to him. They could still talk to him. They could hear him, but they could not see him. They could approach the entrance, but they couldn't enter. Cain and Abel bring their offerings. Abel offers the best of the sheep he is rearing. Cain offers some of the crops he has been able to till from the cursed ground. We read that God accepts Abel's offering. And Cain is so angry. You know why Cain's angry? Cain is angry because he doesn't want to change his ways. He wants to offer God the produce from the ground. That's what he wants to offer. He doesn't want to change his sacrifice. He doesn't want to give God what God wants. He wants to give God what is convenient, what he's best at, but not what God wants. He doesn't want to change his ways. He doesn't want to change his sacrifice. And he doesn't want to change his priorities to please God. And rather than change he decides to murder Abel, thinking that if he gets rid of Abel, God will have to accept his sacrifice. God sees Cain's countenance. He knows what Cain is thinking, and he warns Cain. Cain has no regard for the word of God or the warning. God says to him in verse 7 of chapter 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you offer me what I want, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, if you choose your own way, your own self-determination, sin is lying at the door. Sin is the motivation. And, and that word lying at the door, it means crouching. It's like a lion crouching outside. And its desire is for you but you should rule over it. Sin wants to take the advantage. Sin wants to rule. Cain does not refuse the influence and lie of sin. Somehow he thinks that life will be better without the godly Abel. Just like Eve, what, what did they say? The apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree. I wonder if it's because of this. Just like Eve thought her life would be better with the forbidden fruit. In the same manner, Cain thinks his life will be better without the godly Abel. And so he calls his brother out to a field and he kills him. God calls to Cain, where's your brother? He's giving Cain the opportunity to repent, 
just like he gave Adam and Eve the chance for confession and repentance. But Cain lies and acts deceitfully as if God doesn't know, as if God didn't see. And God says, don't you know that his blood is crying out to me? What is the blood of Cain crying out? Vengeance, vengeance. Cain is given a punishment by God. God announces that he'll be estranged, that he'll no longer be able to till the ground. It will no longer yield for him. Cain says, don't do this to me. Because Cain feels sorry for himself. I think he's got to be such a narcissist. His punishment just seems too much. He just killed his brother. And he's like, but I shouldn't be punished for that. I mean, what if someone does to me what I just did to my brother? Isn't that the truth? I, what if someone tries to murder me? I murdered my brother, but what if someone tries to murder me? It's not fair. You've got to protect me. And God has mercy on Cain. But Cain moves eastward. In other words, he's moving further away from Eden, further away from the presence of the Lord. And although his descendants have many advancements, instruments and iron, all of this is done, is done away from the presence of the Lord. They build a city. They make a name for themselves. But there is exploitation. Lamech, his grandson, takes two wives. He murders a young man, and then he brags about it to his wife and says, if Cain was avenged by God, man, I'm going to get even greater vengeance. 70 times 7, what he's saying is, I'll kill anybody who comes after me. So far, what have we learned about sin? We've seen it's powerful because it's enticing, it's tempting, it's captivating. We've learned that it's deceptive because it appears harmless. Remember, it looked like the other trees. It promises fulfillment, open eyes, and sophistication. The opportunity to choose for yourself what is good and what is evil. In other words, why should I accept the moral standards of God? Why shouldn't I be able to choose for myself what is good and what is bad? What is right for me and what's not right for me? Why should God be the person that tells me that? We've learned that it's beautiful to look at. It's not ugly. It's not repulsive. We expect sin to be like, I'm sin. But sin is like, hi, I'm sin. I look like Fabio. I'm sin. It's entertaining. It's entertaining. It, it's, it draws your eyes to it. It's tasty. The first bite is delicious, but it has disastrous results. It brings death. My dad used to say the problem with sin is that the results are often slow acting. And those of us who are parents, we tell our kids, sin is terrible. But the kids don't know, but the parents do because the parents have seen the result of sin. 
And we're talking about the end of sin, the effect, the place it leads you. We're not talking about the seductive, beautiful part. If sin was ugly and tasted terrible, nobody would fall into it. The poison is slow acting, but sure. It leaves you vulnerable. It leaves you exposed. It drives you into hiding. It makes you resent and fear the presence of God. It steals your joy and fellowship, and it brings blame and accusation. I talked to a young woman who fell into a very serious drug addiction and ended up a heroin addict. And when I talked to her, she told me it all started one day in a car with her peers, and they were smoking pot, and they were passing it around, and she refused it. And one of the young men said to her, just take it. It's not a gateway drug. And when she saw that joint, she expected it to be the worst experience of her life. She expected to, you know, take it in and just feel lousy and terrible and guilty and it would be just awful. And so she took it in and she said she felt elated. She felt like all her problems disappeared. She felt giddy and she thought, wow, I didn't expect this. But then pretty soon the marijuana wasn't doing it for her. So then she went to ecstasy. And her first time she did ecstasy, she said, oh, this is wonderful. All the problems are over. And then from ecstasy, pretty soon that wasn't doing it for her. So she, she went on to cocaine and from cocaine to heroin, just trying to get that first experience that she had years ago. And what she realized at the end of her road is sin had seduced her, deceived her, and left her with death. It's not the first bite. I had a friend who used to work, I have a friend, she used to work in the gambling industry. I'm not allowed to say what her name is, who she is, or anything, but let me tell you what I can say. She told me her husband used to be the casino uh, manager, that's how they met. She used to do the blackjack table. And they told her, those new people that you've never seen before, let them win. Make them win. She's the, she told me the way to get someone addicted to gambling is to make them win at first. She said because if they win at first, they expect to win every time and they will use up all their money trying to win and become absolutely addicted. So she said that she used to stack the cards to make the new people win. Because if you win the first time, you'll be an addict. Most dangerous thing you can have. Sin is seductive. The first bite tastes good. Tastes good. I, I'm not going to deny it. It tastes good. It's the results. It's that slow-acting results. It's that slow downward spiral. It's that gateway that you've just walked through. But there's one more thing we learn about sin, and that's in Genesis chapter 5. We learn that there is hope through the seed of the woman. Now, those of you who are reading this and you're going back to Genesis 3, verse 15, you're like, seed of a woman? 
a woman doesn't have seed, she has eggs. In fact, I was talking to Margaret yesterday who informed me that the biggest cell in a woman is the egg. And the smallest cell in a man is the seed. But what is this telling us, the seed of a woman? It's telling us about a virgin birth. It's telling us that a virgin will give birth to a son, to a Messiah, who will crush the head of Satan, but in the process will become mortally wounded. As we look at the lineage of Seth, Abel dies, but God raises up a godly seed through Seth. We find one godly son stands out in each generation. You read about, they had lots of sons and daughters, but one, one, one out of a hundred, one out of 200 in each generation chooses to seek God. And then we get Enoch who gets special attention because of his daily walk with God. He walks with God. What Adam and Eve once had in the garden, Enoch has. And he gets taken back into Eden. He gets taken into the presence of God. And God took him. And he was not because God took him. Because he walked with God. We learn that the sons of Seth that resist sin are the ones who hold the messianic hope. As Lamech expresses concerning Noah, his son, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Each one had a hope for one son. Is this son the Messiah? This son, this son is carrying on that special seed that will be the Messiah. God will provide the seed, the Messiah, through a woman, one who will remove the curse of sin by crushing the head of the serpent, becoming mortally wounded in the process. This hope against the power of sin that the ancients could only wait for is ours today through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He came born of a woman. On the cross, he received a mortal wound from the serpent. Yet in dying, he crushed the serpent's head and provided the payment for all the transgressions of men. He reversed the curse. And the curse of sin is in the process of reversal right now. One soul at a time. One ransomed soul at a time. He conquered death when he rose again, and now he offers emancipating power against sin, a power Satan does not want you to know or to tap into or to utilize. But because of Jesus, we have the victory over sin and over the consequences of sin, which is death. And now death has become, for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, only a transport to glory. Death is but the doorway to the crystal sea, the translucent sea, to the glowing throne of God, to the emerald rainbow, to the thousands who stand before him, 
in glistening robes proclaiming his glory. It is simply a transport. It has lost its power. It has lost its curse. It was the desire for self-determination. I want my will. I want to choose what is good and what is bad for me that brought death. But the desire to give Jesus the commitment to give Jesus the right to determine the course of our existence, to say to Jesus Christ, you choose for me. You tell me what is good, and that's good. You tell me what is bad, and that's real bad. You tell me where to go, and that's what I'll walk in. When we do that, the course of our existence leads to life, and that more abundantly. Sin reigned from Adam until Jesus, and Jesus stopped the course of sin. The curse held strong, but now it's in the process of being undone, undone, one ransom life at a time. Sin is strong, but our Messiah Jesus is stronger. He is stronger. We have all seen and experienced the disastrous consequences of Eve's lethal choice to bite down into the forbidden. But truth be told, don't you go blaming Eve because you've all taken a bite. All of us have taken the bite and come short of the glory of God. There is not one person in here who has not taken that lethal bite. I remember when I was a little girl hearing about a little boy. This is such a gross story sticking something up his nose. It was a whistle. And so what did I do? As I heard my parents talking about that little boy who had stuck a whistle in his nostril, I stuck one in mine. I don't know why. And then I had to pull it out. I had this terrible bloody nose. I didn't want to tell my mom how it happened. She's like, what happened? How did you do this? I'm like, I don't know. I bit the apple. I bit the forbidden fruit. I just heard about what he did. And I was like, I want to try that. That sounds fun. We've all done. We've all done it. We've all done it. So we can't blame Eve because she just did what we would all do and what we've all done. Christ crushed the head of the serpent and took the mortal blow for us. He took the mortal bite. Eve bit into the forbidden. And Jesus' heel was bitten. That we who are sinners and rebels might be made saints and priests to our God. Jesus today offers freedom from the curse of sin and from the consequence of sin through faith. Faith, I trust you. I trust your word. I give you the right to choose my destiny. And today, through Jesus Christ and faith, giving it to Jesus, we can be free, free through the great, amazing, emancipating power that was brought to us 
through the blood of Jesus Christ that spilled from the cross onto the earth. And as the author Hebrews says, the blood of the Messiah speaks greater things to us than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel said, vengeance. They're under the curse. But the blood of Jesus Christ says, forgiveness and cleansing. It's a better word that we have received through Jesus Christ. Eve blew it. We've blown it. But Jesus Christ is greater. And he forgives and cleanses to the uttermost all who will come to him. This is the good news about the bad news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have freed us from the curse of sin. Lord, we do not answer to Satan. We are not intimidated by Satan. We call on the authority of Jesus Christ. Lord, we will not let this world and the circumstances of this world and the God of the power of this air speak the final word. That is not his word to speak. Death does not speak over us. Sin does not speak over us. But Jesus Christ speaks over us the word of life. Lord, we pray right now that you would come and you would speak over us the word of life. Lord, that when the sin shows its, its death, its ugliness, that we, like the women of Proverbs 31, we would laugh knowing that our whole family is bathed in scarlet. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray that blood over our lives, that authority over our lives, the authority of life over death. We pray this in the power and the authority and the name that is above every name, the name that has crushed the head of Satan, the name that has taken the death that we deserve, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the only Son of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will reign forevermore. And we say yes to the authority of Jesus. Will you say yes just right now to the authority of Jesus? Just say it, yes. Yes to the authority of Jesus. We give you the authority right now in Jesus' name.